Crimes While Caffeinated contains graphic and explicit content that may not be suitable to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Congratulations on your Fauci ouchie. Marissa got her first dose of the Moderna vaccine today. Proudly wearing my sticker. Okay, can I just say, first off, you you do the intro, the proper intro. Hello, and welcome to Crimes While Caffeinated. I'm Abby, one of your co-hosts. And I am Marissa, your other co-host, who is insistent on holding her microphone stand. Sure, why not? But yes, I got my, my shot today. So far, feel good. Um... And uh, I, I got to tell you, um, you've never been to the Natick Mall, but the Natick Mall, I, I think I, I've informed you that the Natick Mall is like the god of all malls in Massachusetts. Um, yes. Because um, when we went to college in Springfield, there was the Holyoke Mall and um, Abby and our friend Emily, who are from Maine, were so overwhelmed by the architecture and beauty of the Holyoke Mall, which is the trash of all malls. <laughs> but they're used to the Mall of Maine, so I can't I can't hurt them for that. Um, no. No, okay, that is not the I was not overwhelmed by the architecture of the Holyoke Mall. You, okay, there was a point where you literally were like, oh my God, the architecture, like, meh, 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 meh. I remember oh, this. Okay, so listen, the the main mall is uh, the only, like, major indoor mall in the state. It's, it's only, it's also only all one, like, one level. There's no upstairs and downstairs, really. Like, it's, it's all just one level. Um, and the Holyoke Mall is, like, three levels. I always said, oh, if if you guys are shocked by this mall, then, like, you should see the Natick Mall. The Natick Mall has every store you could ever imagine, including the American Girl store. I had booked my appointment, and I had used my parents' address because – you know, it's easier to do that sometimes, but we got completely different locations for where we could get our, um, shots. And (laughs) I had to drive over an hour to get to Natick for mine. Now I didn't realize until I pulled up that I was getting vaccinated at the Natick mall. (laughs) And so I, it, they literally were like, go to parking C. And I was like, am I going into the mall? Because some malls have like a medical center nearby or they yeah. share a same parking lot. No, I went into what used to be Sears underneath Dave and Buster's. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and That's I was okay. like, so I texted my mom in a group chat and I was like, I really hope they give me free tokens for my vaccine. <laughs> Um, and so I walked in, I, I got my vaccine and everything like that. And then they were giving these things away when you were leaving. And I was like, my fat ass thought that it was eclairs for some reason. I don't know why. I thought it was food related. No, they were K95 masks, complimentary five per a box, but I really wanted food. 
treat. That's a reward. Did you get yourself a treat afterwards anyway? No, I waited until I got home and I made myself the Trader Joe's diner mac and cheese. And um, I feel like that was a good reward. Okay. Uh, I did drive a total of like, like over two hours today and I didn't stop for drive through. So that was a proud moment of myself. Um <laughs> Yeah, so uh, yeah, that's how uh, my day's gone so far. Um, what about you, Abby? Before I ask you what you're drinking, um, so all I've done today is hang out on the couch with Anna and watch this documentary that we're going to talk about. Um, but yesterday we had a really busy day. We did some decluttering of our room. We got rid Ooh. of a bunch of a bunch of like old clothes that, um have holes in them or stains or whatever and just like we don't need anymore that they no longer um spark joy that's right we got rid of stuff that does not spark joy and <laughs> um that felt really good to just like get rid of a whole bunch of stuff like I have a lot of underwear with holes in it and so now I have no underwear with holes in it have have you run out of underwear do you need to go get new underwear now right so then after that we went <laughs> to the store to get underwear that did not have holes in it and uh, among some some other uh summer clothing items that both Anna and I needed so perfect perfect yeah yeah yeah. and I also cleaned the guinea pig's cage oh yay oh that's my bra sitting on top of it oh well I mean I would not have known that but thank you for sharing (laughs) yeah anytime um, I cleaned the guinea pig's cage yesterday with Anna's help. I really appreciate Anna's help with that because um, she's afraid of the guinea pigs. She doesn't touch them. Uh, <laughs> okay. But she helped me with, you know, scooping the poop and putting everything in. I mean, she's, what, always lived in New York City, right? Uh, no, she was born in the Dominican Republic, and she lived there until she was uh, uh, 12. Oh, I was just going to say, if she grew up in New York City, maybe she just, anytime she sees a rodent of that size, thinks that they're a rat, and thus avoids them at all costs, which would make sense, but sure. True, True. but I think, I think Anna's fear of them is more just like, she has a general fear of like all animals and all creatures that she is unfamiliar with. That's a lie, because she was having a lot of fun with your roommate's dog on FaceTime the other day, so... He's little, and she's known him for since they moved in. But he's a little dog. Big dog, she's not a fan of. When she met my dog, Dixie, she... Okay, well, Dixie, Dixie's a little extra. Dixie's a little intimidating. I'm still mad at Dixie because I guess did not have a dog at the time. And for some reason did not think that leaving my Panera Bread apple strudel in the distance that a dog could eat it that I was shocked that Dixie ate it. Um, still yeah. hurt my feelings. I was like, Marissa, what were you expecting? She didn't a have a dog. You left I'm... food on the floor. Not, not even, it was on the floor. <laughs> I didn't have animals at the time. Okay, now I've learned. Now I forgive Dixie. She's a good, she's a good hound dog. Is she? Yeah. She's not really. She's not really a good dog. She's she's a she's a beautiful dog. She's a she, fun she tries dog. her best, okay? But she's not a well-behaved dog. Actually, she's much more well-behaved now in her old age and since my parents moved mm. um, to, to a new place. So she doesn't escape anymore and, like, run away anymore. She 
they can let her go outside off her leash and she'll go outside and she'll come back in a few minutes. Oh, proud of you, girl. Well, today is Sunday while we're recording this. So happy National Pet Day. Yes, it is National Pet Day. Happy National Pet Day to all the the pets and pet owners out there. Um, Yeah. Posted some cute pics of Leo. And uh, you uh, you and Aaron are uh, going to be posting pictures of the guineas, correct? Yes, I think so. Because we, we have Catter Day. We have a special day for Leo and the cats, but none for the guinea pigs. Again, if you have cats or, um, you know, uh, your family has cats, please DM us the pictures of your cats or tag us because we would love to share your cute cats. Yes. Um, send DM us, send us a tag us on Instagram, send us an email with pictures of your cats. Um, and we will feature your beautiful felines in our Catterday posts. Your beautiful fur babies. Um, Abby, what are you drinking? Good old fashioned water. Okay. Well, at least I caffeinated myself today for. It's 5 p.m. and I have to work tomorrow. <laughs> yeah? and <laughs> It's 5 p.m. and I have to work tomorrow. If I drink coffee right now at 5 p.m., I'm going to be up until like 3 o'clock in the morning. Okay. Well, Abby's drinking water. I'm drinking Stoke iced coffee, the pre-made stuff. Yep. Um, with uh, vanilla creamer in it. Um, I'm drinking this because one of my residents decided to blast music at three o'clock in the morning. Um, and I woke up and uh, had to go and have a very stern conversation about how the real world works at three o'clock in the morning. So um, I'm tired. And then I was scared about missing my appointment. So um, I need to just stay up to make it through these recordings. And then I am taking a nap. And by nap, I mean sleep. <laughs> I was going to say, by the time that we're done with these recordings, it will probably be fully time to sleep. Um, so what are we going to talk about today, Marissa? What, what are we covering? Uh, actually, I'm honestly, I thrived with this. Um, this was incredible. Thank you. Okay, so um, we are covering... This is a robbery, the world's biggest art heist. Um, It is a 2021 limited series on Netflix that recently just came out this month. And I was super excited to do this one, having honestly not realized what it was about. Obviously, I knew it was a robbery. Yeah. um, I grew up in Boston um, slash outside of Boston. And so... Every uh, couple of years on the anniversary of the Isabella Gardner heist, uh, museum heist, um, they always do a news report on it and up the reward price. And so I was super excited to like get in depth on this case um, that happened in the 1990s um, before I was born. Um, <laughs> <laughs> needed to point that out. Um But yeah, so this is all um, right in my backyard. And uh, weirdly, uh, this case, as we will discuss, covers both where I'm from, where Abby's from, and where Abby lives now at one point. So it it did a very wide scale of coverage. 
And um, yeah, I never went to the museum on a field trip, but I have gone to the Museum of Fine Arts, which is not too far away from the Isabella Gardner Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, and coincidentally, um, a, one of the buildings on the campus that I work at, you can figure that out for yourself, um, is actually was used to be the vacation home for Isabella Gardner. Oh, interesting. Yes. So when she had her free time, she would come up here and uh, chill out on the beach. So, I mean, uh-huh. I, that's just an estimation, but this was her vacation home. So cool. So, yes, we're covering the world's biggest art heist today. And it is a crazy story, a crazy docuseries. Um, and uh, lots of twists, lots of turns, lots of different theories. It's still unsolved to this yeah, day. 30 years. Still unsolved case. It has it, of 31 years. Mm-hmm. Um, this past March, it was. Uh, March 18th would have been the 31st anniversary. So that is just wild. And <laughs> um, it's a, it's such a crazy documentary. It was really, really good and interesting and fun to watch. So let's um, hop into it. So let's jump into it. Uh, 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 uh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so Abby, what is the title of episode one? The title of episode one is they looked like cops. Dun, dun, dun. Very scary. Mm. Um, and we're introduced right away to where we're at, which is the Isabella Gardner Museum in Boston. Um, and we meet, is this what you're reading or what I'm reading? Sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll cut that out later. Um, so what I'm going to be highlighting is what I'm going to talk about just so okay. that you know what I'm going to be talking about. I can highlight okay. it in a different color if you'd like. No, no, no. It's okay. I just want to know so I can see. Um, so yes, I know I, what, I I d- what I should Yes. I just, I don't want, I know that I have a tendency of cutting you off. So I was like, I, I'm going to highlight what I'm actually going to be reading. Um, I am going to take a little bit extra of this um just so that it's evenly split um okay and then we'll go from there so anything I highlight in the light blue is what I plan on saying and then you can jump in and add anything that you want as we go okay cool sounds great all right so we're introduced to the Isabella Gardner Museum um March 18th, 1990, which is obviously the day after St. Patrick's Day in Boston. Um, That was when the art heist occurred. It was the largest art heist in the world, but it is also the biggest unsolved mystery of Boston history. And we get a little bit of an introduction to it with the accounts of two witnesses, um, a man and a woman who had been going to a St. Patrick's Day party that night because St. Patrick's Day in Boston is big. It's a big deal. So um, we love to... Excuses to drink. <laughs> yes, we love excuses to drink, but we especially love to exercise our heritage uh, and sure. there is a very large Irish American population here, as we will get into. Um, but predominantly, it is that we just like to get as shit face as possible. Yes. So we have this man and woman. They are walking down the street, going to trying to get to a party, and they pass by two 
uh, uniformed police officers who are sitting in a regular car and they assume, oh, the cops are already here. That means they're going to shut down the party. And um, they leave. And it's not until afterwards that they realize the car had been parked directly in front of the Gardner Museum. Yes. Um, and so we have a lot of talking heads in this mm-hmm. documentary, a lot of jumping back and forth. So um, we'll try to keep it as clear and concise as possible with who's talking and who shared what information. But obviously, when we do these documentaries, we highly recommend that you watch them yourself just because it's also enjoyable. But anyways, um, so we first meet Anne Holly. Um, she's the first woman art director, and she had literally like just started when yeah. this heist went down, and I felt so bad for her. Um, I know. Yes. And so we meet her. Then we meet Shelly Murphy, who's a reporter for the Boston Globe, as well as Kevin Cullen. Um, And I just loved how uh, Kevin Cullen literally goes like, oh, this sounds super pretentious, like when I say this, but he was basically comparing like if the MFA was the Louvre, then... um, then the Gardner Museum was comparative to a different, like, honestly, a museum I had never heard of. But he, he sounds so classy saying what he's saying word-wise, but he's saying it in the trashiest Boston accent. Yeah, and, and it's he's just, like, it's comical of the back and forth comparative. I believe the very first sentence he says in the documentary has the word wicked in it. Like he he jumps in right off the bat with like, oh, this is a wicked big case. This is a wicked (laughs) big case, bub. So then he goes right into describing all that. It's, it's so funny. Oh, it's, it's perfect. Um, And anyone, my, my favorite thing that we will discuss in my household all the time is my mom has like a Boston accent, but it only comes out when she's, angry or tired and (laughs) so my family always decides to just piss her off even more if she's already crossed that line we just know that like we can just keep pushing her um so we'll just always repeat what she said in a over-the-top Boston accent and it's just it's classic anyways but that's all I kept thinking when he was doing that I was like yeah, Wicked and Pakuka and Harvard Yard. But yes, of course, anyone who's ever like met anyone from Boston has said that. So yes, yeah. I definitely heard that. But we okay. Have, and yeah, just all the Boston accents in this documentary are incredible. They are yes. top tier. Oh, yes. Um, so the museum, we get a little bit into that on the outside. It's very plain looking. And I think that they did that really on purpose to kind of have it blend in with the architecture around it. But the moment you step into the museum, it's like walking back in time. There's this beautiful garden in the center. Um, and each room is, they're named different things. So they have like the yellow room, the red room, the blue room. Um, but each room has a theme, um, a color scheme, uh, furniture, paintings that all kind of go with each other. Um, and uh, the in Isabella Gardner's uh, will, she said that if anything about the building had permanently been changed, that she would want all of the paintings to be shipped to Paris and the building sold and all the money would go to Harvard, which I thought was really interesting. Um, And then Isabella Gardner, as a woman in general, 
a woman before her time. She was eccentric. She was flirty. She was confident in herself. Um, There was this weird story that they shared where she wanted to test the acoustics of the building. And so she brought blind children in because they couldn't see anything. Yeah, because... The museum wasn't opened yet and she wanted people to hear like she wanted to make sure the acoustics were right but she didn't want anybody to see the museum before it was officially open so her solution was to get a bunch of blind children from um the perkins school of the blind yeah the school for the blind which apparently she had some kind of connection with and she got it <laughs> it was just it was very um tone deaf i think um on her part sorry we're, we're laughing not because it's like no because it's absolutely ridiculous why she thought that was okay i don't know why it's it's just inappropriate <laughs> to be like blind children come come not like oh could you like blindfold be blindfolded and come inside no like let me manipulate children who will never be able to see the art in this room yeah so um but they expressed that the building itself the museum was her own like work of art that she could give to the world and that's why it was so important to her and why she was so um particular about everything staying the way it is Mm mm-hmm so then we are introduced to this woman, Karen San Gregory, um, who was a former guard at the Isabella Gardner Museum. And I included the note that she has big lesbian energy because. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, she does. She she exudes big lesbian energy. We love to see it. That haircut was just back in yeah, the her, 90s. Her, her 90s haircut was, was. I mean, her current one is pretty pretty eccentric but she just she just gives off she just gives off vibes so uh anyway we love her and she's talking about um how much she enjoyed being a guard there how you really like fall in love with the art and it's just like a dream to work there and even 30 years later she still like loves it and thinks about it um and then we meet a couple of the other guards, Charles Hedorn and Aaron Fannin, um, and they talk about how an overnight shift there was a luxury. You could literally just walk around, look at the art, kind of have a quiet night to yourself, and then you just sort of hung out and waited for something to happen. And nothing ever happened except for this one time. <laughs> yeah, which I did quickly want to interject. Just the fact that, like, as you're watching this documentary, like, you're you're talking to these people who are grown adults now, but at mm-hmm. the time, this museum had millions and millions of dollars worth of art in it. And uh, if I'm correct, um, one of the gentlemen, he was like, oh, yeah, I was 19. Yeah. Rick, Rick, who was one of the guards who had, um, oh, yes, you can come in. Sorry, I have to grab the phone from Erica. Okay, uh, <laughs> okay. bye. Bye, thank you. Of course. Um, so quick interjection. Um, one of the, I believe Aaron Fannin, he was 19 years old and yeah. he was a guard there. And then Rick, who we meet later, who was one of the guards who was there during the night of the robbery, was 23. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, should those people 
really be in charge? Well, and the, the, the big lesbian energy, Karen, she also looked very young in the picture. Oh, yeah. She looked like a, she looked like a little baby. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you see her talking, she has like a full head of gray hair, but she can't be that old. She doesn't look that old. No. Sorry, I'm going to sneeze. Bless you. Okay. Okay. Um, but I just kept thinking to myself, like, uh, of course this was a luxury job. You got, you did nothing. You literally sat there and wasted hours on end for somebody else to come and replace you. They probably read books. They probably smoked a lot. They probably just chit chatted or like played music on like a cassette tape or something like that. Like, yeah. I mean, I think later they reveal that the one of the other guards who was working that night brought his trombone to his shift because he assumed that he would have nothing to do. So he was just going to be playing, like practicing his trombone all night. Yeah. Like that. So like it was I, just a chill. It was such a chill job. So I do. I honestly do feel really bad for them. I do, too. So. Um, so we go to Boston, March 18th, 1990. It is the day after St. Patrick's Day, and it is the day of the St. Patrick's Day parade, which is, um, you know, just part two of St. Patrick's Day. People have the excuse now to drink for the whole weekend. Um, the St. Patrick's Day parade is big in Boston. It is confined to an area in South Boston. There's a huge police presence there, obviously, because there's a lot of people. It draws in like crowds of hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, there was always um, a group of college students who that we went to college with who would drive like over two hours to go to this, mm-hmm. this yep. uh, parade. So Yeah. And I mean, now, like, I think modern times, usually they have like uh athletes go like you know the red Sox will be a part of the parade or whatever like and so it's it's a fun like it's a big event it's a fun event it's a just a excuse to get shit faced (laughs) all day long it's like Uh, our version of mardi gras yeah yeah it's like the new england mardi gras (laughs) like that's Um, the most accurate representation of it that actually is pretty accurate um so uh this is on a different side of Boston than where the museum is. So this is a, diff- a totally different area. That area would be kind of calm, quiet um, during the day of the parade. So then we go back to my girl, Karen. Um, she shows up for the shift change in the morning and nobody's answering the doors. She waits a while, eventually um, calls her supervisor or calls the chief of security and she says you know i'm here supposed to be starting my shift nobody's answering the doors there's got to be somebody there though so they get there and they get inside through this like little side door and they get into security office the um door had been busted open there was a crowbar on the floor um one of the there was a a picture frame sitting on the chair um there was like all kinds of stuff and her supervisor gives her the crowbar and just says here hold this and her first thought is like wait this is the scene of a crime like this looks like the scene of a crime and I'm putting my handprints on this evidence and then her second thought is oh he wants me to hold this crowbar in case the bad guys are still here and like we have to defend ourselves um and then uh you know they they call the police immediately because it appears that there's been a break-in something's 
wrong, obviously. And they tell them, you know, we got some, we got big trouble. We got a big problem. Yep. Um, and Anne Holly, who's the director, as we said, she's called about the theft. So she starts heading over that direction. The guards are ended up located, uh, tied and taped up in the basement. Now, this is an interesting part and why we recommend that you watch the documentary for yourself because the photos are unbelievable. They show photos of the guys like actively tied up, which is hilarious that they were like, we're just going to wait till the photographer gets here so we can snap some pics of you all tied up before we untie you. Yeah, not even that, but like, yeah, like the, the Boston police had to come, the FBI. So we meet John Green. He's a forensics, uh, forensic photographer for the FBI. Um, one of the guards, as we had mentioned, his name is Richard, but he goes by Rick throughout this. So if I go back and forth or Abby goes back and forth, th- this it's the same person we're referring to. But so Rick was taped, but he was weirdly taped around his head and then over his eyes, not his mouth, which would make more sense if you want to silence somebody. Well, he did have some like, um, around his mouth kind of like he did have like one piece that was going like it looked like it was going like across one of his lips or like across like across his nose but his but his eyes were taped more yeah his eyes were completely covered and then the rest was going around his his head and uh um in a really weird way that like makes no sense almost like um i would say almost like he was wearing like a head set type thing for like to hold his jaw when you get your wisdom teeth out and you have to wear that thing around you that's what he looked like but it was duct tape yes um so so it was it was weird and as john (laughs) green says like this is the only time he has ever seen that um and he said this the the taping was strange and that it was strange that they were taped and hadn't been killed um, and he kept saying, like, why had these people not been killed as dead man tell no tales, which, as we realized in uh, Murder Amongst Mormons, it is ke- easier to keep a secret when the other person's dead. So right. um, and then we go back to Anne Holly, um, the director who she had no idea was what was happening. No one was communicating with her um, what had been stolen. She was horrified. The these, you know, big ordained um like beautifully designed golden frames if you've ever been to a museum like they're big thick frames yeah Um, they're laying on top of each other um the paintings had been cut from the frames um something like from you know the classic like a robber comes down on a on a rope (laughs) And like cuts it out of the frame, rolls it up and puts it in the back of his bag and runs away. Um, But as they said, cutting the canvas with the paint on it out of the frames is so time consuming to cut. It's not easy. And these, these paintings, because of how many layers of paint are on it, it's not easy to roll up as if blueprints. Um, And uh, the cutting. I added that. Yes. Uh, yeah, sorry. I added that the the cutting would also just damage the art as well. Mm-hmm. So like if you were thinking that oh these guys are lo- like stealing the art looking to sell it on the black market or you know use it as collateral for whatever, um they've damaged it. So now it's going to be would it be worth slightly less, right? If they've damaged it and rolled it up. I mean, um, they, they mentioned that the seascape 
was missing a corner of it because of the way that they cut it out. So absolutely. Um, And so in total, 13 um, works of art had been stolen. Um, I didn't know if you wanted to break this up with me just be I'm really bad at pronouncing names um sure (laughs) you want me to read them all or just yeah you can read them all um so we have the concert by uh Johannes Vermeer a lady and gentleman in black by Rembrandt um this was an interesting a particularly unique and interesting piece of Rembrandt's art because um, this had been painted over by Rembrandt himself. Um, it was a portrait of a man and a woman and you can see a space in between them. Um, they had x-rayed that painting and discovered that there was um, the outline of a child and it's believed that he had done a, a portrait of a family, a man and woman and their child and then the child died and the parents were so stricken with grief that they requested the child be painted over in the portrait, which is real morbid, real sad. Uh, um, yeah, I was gonna say, I was like, I can't imagine someone being like, oh, let's take a family photo and cut out our dead child, but. Right, but I guess like, I do gre- gre- Everyone has their own grieving process anyways. <laughs> shit, was, shit was different back then too. Um, <laughs> So then we have Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee, also painted by Rembrandt. Um, Portrait of the the Artist as a Young Man, another Rembrandt. Uh, Landscape with Obelisk obelisk by uh, Govart Flink. And Chez Tortoni by Edouard Manet. I just loved Um, that that later they called him Tortellini. Tortellini. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to that, but. (laughs) Then we have um, a bronze eagle finial um from the napoleonic era which is just like a flag like a flagpole with like a the little, top of it mm-hmm. um the, it has a little eagle statue at the top of the flagpole and that's what they took which is such a bizarre thing to take um then they also took a they took uh, five five words five, they took five different drawings by edgar Degas. they say Degas, but i thought it was Degas. i don't know um, uh, I, I don't know, but you, it, it sounds right when you say it. <laughs> the, well, the art director said Degas, and I was like, it's, isn't Degas, like, I, I feel like I would Degas. go. I would go what she says. <laughs> right. So anyway, they got five uh, drawings from that guy, and then an ancient Chinese goo, which is like a little vase beaker type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the... The little eagle finial, the top of the flag, um, they found there were some screws left behind where they had tried to unscrew it from the top of the the flagpole. Um, and the fact that the screws were like left behind in a cigarette butt container um, showed the investigators that the thieves were running out of time and they were moving too quickly and they didn't really have time to to completely remove the the eagle from the top so they just took I don't know if it was the eagle I think that they had taken the eagle and they were trying to take the flag with it but the flag wouldn't detach from the wall okay so then they had to instead of okay so then they had to I, I was confused when they were describing it it didn't like make yeah, they, so they took it off the top because it, that was easy to grab off, but the yeah. the flag itself that had been attached to the flagpole had been screwed into the wall, and mm-hmm. so that was some of the screws. So they had some of the screws removed, but not the rest, and they left that, okay. which they said 
is totally fine because that that flag is worth nothing. Yeah. So why waste your time on it? Yeah. So it's estimated that the total cost of the art was worth around $200 million at the time. Um, and so this is a, obviously a huge uh, theft and a very pricey one. Um, but there was no specific, at the time, there was no specific division of the FBI dedicated to, um, you know, priceless art theft and like all that. Uh, and there was really no kind of like forensic experts for this, um, or there was no like dedicated divisions for this. So they kind of really don't know where to start, but they decide to start by offering a reward to anybody who knows any information. Um, that way they can sort of get people talking, which we've talked about that as a method being used multiple times before. So they start with a, um, they call a chair member from the museum and they get a $1 million reward put up. Um, this ended up causing too many people to uh, call in hoping they could get a million dollars. And they actually broke the phone system at the museum or wherever they were calling to. So um, at this time, the director had only been there for about six months which is just so crazy you see the, the press interviewing her and they're like how long have you been the director of this museum and she's like six months <laughs> like she just started and this happened like right off the bat her first year this poor woman um but she ended up staying for a long time she was yeah she ended up staying until 2016 which I was like okay so like the worst possible thing happened happen. right off the bat on your first year <laughs> you can handle it from there right yes um anything so, else is a cakewalk <laughs> yeah the media the press is really brutal um you know you see clips of them interviewing her they're asking her all these questions do you know about these guards do you know about um the security of the museum in general um and she's just trying to deflect it because at that point she had such little information and they Nobody had any information. So you see this poor woman just trying to like, be like, I don't know, just ask the FBI. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we then start to talk to Trone Br Brakey. Um, he works in, or used to work in the FBI specifically in the Boston office. So he says that the thieves knew uh, what they were doing. This clearly was experienced people. Um, especially looking at the way that they breached the security office. Um, they also did a lot of interviewing and they interviewed Richard Abbott and Richard Abbott is uh, Rick. Um, so the two men, um, he says, had come to the door, buzzed, said that they um, were cops, which as from the camera, he was like, they looked like cops. They were dressed as cops. So they rang the bell so that they were Boston police and that they were there on the premises for a disturbance. Now, the the doors of um, the Isabella Gardner Museum had a system where you could get through the first door, but you needed to then be buzzed in again for the second door. Um, mm -hmm. It was pretty much like a, almost like a fortress, pretty much. And that's what... Um, the, our our girl Karen before was saying was that you had to be buzzed in to get into work. Um, and so um, 
Abbott obviously thought that they were people of authority, buzzed them in, um, and they were they asked uh, Rick if he was alone. He said no, that his partner had been doing a round. Um, he asked that the partner be called down um, and that there had been a warrant out for Rick's arrest um, and to get him to come out from behind the desk. Behind the desk had the button that would alert the police. And with the two of them in front of the desk, uh, the perceived cops uh, cuffed both of them and then dramatically said, gentlemen, this is a robbery. Um, and the, co- <laughs> the composite sketches probably were not accurate. Um, the guards didn't get a good the guards didn't get a good long look at them. Um, and Abbott actually ended up saying like their mustaches were like greasy looking. So clearly They're they were fake. fake. Um, and that it was believed that this was not a crime of opportunity, that it was plan- w- planned with a lot of research behind it. Yeah, obviously, since they were disguised. And I just wanted to, I, I, I threw in the note about the, the composite sketches not being accurate because they show these sketches a lot throughout the documentary, but they also make the point of saying that these are sketches based on just the guards description. Um, and the guards didn't get like a really long look also it was the middle of the night it was probably not like there probably were a lot of lights on inside the museum it, like they probably didn't get this really detailed look at them so they they just sort of had this sort of vague idea of what they looked like mm. um <clears throat> so then we're introduced to robert fisher a former u.s attorney and he talks about how this looks like uh the museum had been cased like this wasn't a cold call they weren't going in blind um (laughs) sorry i just thought about the the blind children they weren't going in not knowing (laughs) i just thought about the blind children aaron put that on a shirt no don't do that um so (laughs) they were thinking about I retract it, Aaron. Don't put it on a shirt. <laughs> uh, really, like the the whoever the thieves had clearly either been to the museum before or knew details about the museum that they could, like they weren't just going in not knowing what what it was going to look like on the inside. Um, however, they did spend an awful lot of time um, stealing worthless, not worthless objects, but like basically worthless objects. The um, they were not the most expensive in the room. Yeah. Like the finial, the little finial on the flag was like essentially not worth very much. Um, the little Chinese vase wasn't worth too much. It was one of the older items in the room, but there were but there were like actual, you know, paintings by famous artists that were around it that were worth way more. Yeah. Um, like the full the full size self-portrait of Rembrandt would have been the most expensive thing in the room and they left it behind. Yeah, it, it was on the floor, but they had just left it there on the floor intact. Um, and the little sketch of Rembrandt that he did uh, was in a smaller frame because it was a very tiny sketch of him. And they were saying the thieves took the time to fully unscrew it from the frame and take the picture out when you could have just thrown the picture and the frame in your pocket. It now, was that- to give context 
it like the picture, the the picture itself, the sketch looked like almost the size of a post-it note or an index card. That's how yeah, small it like was. Really, re it's real tiny. It's a really small little self-portrait. Um, so the and also these paintings and this art, all the stuff is stole that was stolen is now is was very well known before and still and is now very well known that it's missing so it would be difficult to sell it without drawing attention to yourself without getting caught without somebody turning you in um so it's thought maybe they were hired like maybe the thieves were hired um and they were stealing the art to give to somebody to hold to have it privately, um, but that doesn't fully make sense either. So it's really unclear, like the motive behind it. Um, and there's a bunch of different theories about that that they get into. Um, but yeah, these are, you know, some of these paintings are extremely valuable and extremely, would be extremely valuable to a collector, like the Rembrandt seascape. That's the only seascape that Rembrandt painted. So that would be extremely important. Then we get to um, Rick Ellis from Scotland Yard saying, uh, you know, if the thieves were hired by somebody to like a, by a private collector, they could have made way more money by just turning in that rich guy, whoever had hired them to steal the art. Um, clearly, since there's a, now a million dollar reward on the line. And um, most art thieves don't really know how to get rid of the artwork once they get it. Um, but when they do get rid of it, that, that becomes the problem that that's when it's harder to trace and, and track down. Yep. Um, so then we're introduced to Steven Ex Exeros. I don't know. Uh, Z uh, it's Z Ziaros. Ziaros? Ziaros. Okay. Um, um, yes, he does. Sorry. It's. Anyways, he also has a very thick accent, too. Um, he's the chief of police in Yarmouth. <laughs> Yarmouth. Um, and so that's around the Cape. Um, so he tells us that July 12, 1988, the mu uh, museum down in Yarmouth, um, there had been a theft. Um, the caretaker had been tied up, taped. Um, and uh, six portraits, 200-piece scrimshaws, and uh, a Chinese vase was stolen. And the oh. name vase was stolen. Um, and the name Miles Connor starts to pop up. Now, I had never heard of this gentleman before, but he is very interesting and a very unique character um so yeah. miles connor is known as being a legendary art theft thief in um boston um slash massachusetts in 1975 he stole a rembrandt from the mfa um mfa is, is museum of fine arts by yes the, way. the museum of fine arts in massachusetts it is a great museum if you have the chance to go definitely go um it was like every school field trip you ever took. Um, if it was not the science museum or the children, children's museum, it was the MFA. Um, so that's what I'm referring to when I say the MFA, just because that's what I'm used to saying. Um, and Martin Lepo, he's a criminal defense attorney and he kind of pops up 
And he's I thought another interesting character. He's also, I want him to write a book. I would read a book that he write, writes. Um, yeah. But he says he met uh, Miles Connor when he was walking Mattapan Square in Boston with a cougar on a leash. Uh, or a mountain lion is what he said. But I assume that it must have been a cougar because who could get a mountain lion? But okay. Um, I mean, who could, who could get, get a cougar? A cougar? <laughs> um, but Miles was um, a musician this in his part time. Yes, that's fair. Kara Baskin. Ah. Um, so, <laughs> sorry. Um, so Miles was a musician. Um, actually, uh, John Green, who we talked to earlier, the forensic photographer his wife when she was growing up had gone with her friends and saw miles connor perform at a bar in yarmouth um and so they even show that he had a uh, a vinyl record um like he had a a somewhat like he had a a, a a semi-professional yeah that was uh, like it was like a local, you know. He was like a local musician that would perform at all the bars and stuff. Yes. And people knew who he was. But he his had talent. Yes, but his big biggest talent or most well known <laughs> talent was theft. Um, and he always had a way of. Um, he was a robber, thief, killer. We meet him, which is very strange. We um, do. He's so, he's featured throughout the. Yes. Show. Yes, he's featured throughout it. He and was, when. When they introduce him as like, oh, he's a robber, he's a thief, he's a killer. And then they're like, here's this little old man sitting in a lawn chair, and he's going to talk to you about all the shit he did. I was uh, like, why is this he is in prison? <laughs> not only that, but he does this after we are introduced to him counting his horses to make sure he has all his horses. <laughs> like, Yeah, he's just, um, he's a real interesting guy. He's a very short um, guy. Anyways. He's a little dude. He's a little dude. Anyways, um, but... Uh, he, yes, he's just a character. We meet him. Um, his father was a police officer. His brother was a police officer, and his other brother was a priest. And he liked to say, "How did how did they go wrong?" Yeah, where um, did they go wrong? He um, was brilliant. Um, he was a student of philosophy as well as a member of Mensa, which I'm assuming is kind of like an honor society. Um, Mensa is the the genius, um, like the genius club. You can only get into it if you have a IQ over a certain level. Oh well, clearly um, I am not in that group. <laughs> it, it, to be a part, to be a member of Mensa is like you literally have to be a genius. So if he was a member of it, then he was, then he's literally a genius, which yeah. ex- explains kind of the eccentricity because I feel like no no extraordinarily smart person is normal <laughs> yes that's that's 100 fair um and he had been in a number of shootouts with police including he had been shot five to six times and then went through surgery without anesthesia yep he he's just a real he's a real interesting dude he's been through a lot i i want him to write a book he he looks like he looks like a grandpa but he also he looks like he could still kill you if he wanted to he could probably have you killed. He could probably just make a quick phone call. Yes. Um, so then we go back to Steven Ziarios, uh, the chief of police for Yarmouth. He talks about how he goes looking for Miles Connor, can't really find him. And then one day gets a phone call from Miles Connor saying, hey, dude, heard you looking for me. Just wanted to let you know I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and then they kind of show... They show like a 
background for Miles, some more background for Miles Connor. Miles Connor is a young person talking about different, uh, you know, art heists and stuff. They ask him, how many times have you stolen art? And he says, 30 times. And then they ask, how many do the police know about? And he's like, very few. Um, so we know that this is like, he's, this is his job. Um, he's a professional art thief. And he even says that um, himself in the documentary that um, he is an art thief. That's his job. That's what he's known for. Um, so that is what he lived his life doing. Um, we go back to Martin Lepo, the criminal defense attorney. By the way, Martin Lepo is the, becomes the criminal defense attorney for everybody involved in this case. <laughs> I know, um, I was going to say, I was like, this sweet, this sweet looking man seems to only like to defend the most vicious looking people. Money. Yes, the money. The mob? You, are you kidding me? If you're going to go ahead and be a criminal defense attorney for people with mob ties, you're set for life. You don't have anything to worry about. Nobody's coming after you. Nobody's going to hurt you. Nobody's going to lay a fucking finger on you because if they do, they'll die. You're you're the lawyer for the mob, basically. Like, yeah, but was, you know, but you know how you also can like not be touched by not being involved with the mob. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like he he like he knew he could make a good solid career if he got in with these high collar criminals that all know each other, right? He could get a great career out of it because then he's the defense attorney. He has tons of money coming in from these guys, tons of dirty dirty money. So you know what? He should he should have a podcast. Martin Lippo should have a podcast. Let's let's hit him up and interview him. Um, so <laughs> we have so Martin Lippo talks about how um uh Miles Miles Connor had uh said that the Gardner Museum was on his bucket list of places that he wanted to rob. However, couldn't have been Miles Connor that robbed the Gardner Museum because he was in jail. Um <laughs> so, <laughs> which okay, they also show this picture where he's like got this well-groomed mustache and sunglasses while he's in his jail cell and you're like it looks like it belongs on like a jazz cover yeah he's okay. just he's he's, he's a, a character cool he's a character him and so, carol baskin if they got together it would be wild them and so, their cougars then we go back to the one of the reporters shelly murphy she says um, everybody assumed that this would be really quick that they would obviously since they stole so much art um they stole so much shit that, that, you know, all the police would be on top of this and they would get it solved in no time. Um, and then, and then they slowly started to realize, oh no, this is going to take a while. They're, they're not going to get this guy or these guys. Um, we go back to Fisher, who was the guy who, um, the former U U.S. attorney who says um, his first week of work for, he was working for the FBI. Um, his first week of work was the 20th anniversary of the, the robbery in 2010. And so he starts looking into this and this becomes his case to, to kind of revisit and try to try to close this, this 20 year old cold case. And he wants to go into it with different um, a different point of view. So he's looking at it from all different kinds of angles. Yep. 
Um, so he kind of described saying like he wants to go through it second by second. And that's our transition into again, second by second account of March 18th, 1990. So, uh, Richard Abbott, as we said, Rick, he's a on duty. Um, he goes, does his first set of rounds, notices that a fire alarm is going off and, um, shuts that off at 1240. 5 a.m. Now, they also have a security system that literally types out and logs what mm-hmm. happens. Um, anytime an alarm or door is shut, it will type it up that this was done at this time. So um, this is how they know, like, all of these different things and, yes. and what happened. Um, the next guard, um, he uh, it's his turn to do his round. Abbott opens the outside door about 15 minutes before the thieves show up. Um a Which panic. Is yes, it's not common. Um, even though at a certain point in time, I think this was normal for Abbott, but I don't know. Um, no, they say. Oh, like, the Abbott says this was normal, and I used to do it all the time. But but when they're looking on the security tapes, they can't find any other evidence of that ever being done. Yeah. So they're like, "Why did you just randomly open the outside door?" And it was only for a couple of seconds. It wasn't like he held it open because I was like, "Well, maybe he was taking like a smoke break because he was a smoker." So may or or maybe he like you know, like was smoking inside and he opened the door and flicked his cigarette out. You never know. But yeah. he opened the door for like a couple of seconds. Yeah. Um. And so uh, a panic button is behind the desk in the museum, and when the fake cops arrived, as we said. They asked them to step out from behind, clearly, clearly because they knew that, like, there must have been some triggering system behind there. So, again, tells us that there's information that we don't know. The thieves also took 81 minutes to raid the place, which is a long time for art art theft. Um, you know, like, that's over an hour, mm-hmm. like, Uh, like just casually taking a stroll there's a lot you can do in that period of time but um the thieves knew about a secret door that had been in one of the rooms um that were typically used by curators um and they also knew about the security tape and so they took the security tape um and knew that uh the alarms were recorded and would be printed um they took the print but also didn't realize that the computer had a hard drive so that was at least one benefit. Um, and most artwork taken from the second floor only. Oh. Most of the artwork. So oh, I wrote this. Note, so okay. it, it only makes sense to me because I write. I don't write notes well. Um, so most of the artwork had been taken from a couple of rooms on the second floor. And then one piece had been taken from the first floor. But the room in the first floor um, where that one piece had been taken, the there were no motion detecting alarms that had gone off when the thieves were in the um, were in their rating. Mm-hmm. So uh, the only record that they had of somebody going into that room on the first floor was Rick Abbott going in when he was doing his rounds prior to the robbery. Gotcha. Um, so it was suspected that Rick might have taken that one painting. Um, because he was the only person to enter that room on record. Gotcha. Um, and then we hear Rick in a voiceover um, who he's not, 
he's not in the documentary, but there's like a lot of recorded interviews with him. And we hear him saying that he knew for sure he would be a suspect, of course, because he was the one that let the thieves in. And he's just saying like, yeah, I I knew right away when the FBI had me sit down that, oh no, here we go. I'm going to be a suspect. Um, and that is where we close out on episode one. Um, so then we go into the beginning of episode two, chapter two, which is called Vipers in the Grass. And we go to um, Robert Fisher, who says, if we had the technology and um, the forensic abilities that we had now, it would have been a completely different crime scene. Because like, you know, by the time by the time the FBI got there, Boston PD had already been there. The security guards had already been walking through the area. Like, you know, the entire crime scene was disrupted by the time the FBI got there. Um, and they didn't know anything about DNA. So it's just so weird to think about how, like, how much DNA is collected and tested nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's 30 years difference, but it, it is crazy to think that, like, but also 30 years doesn't seem like that long that they would like, you know, they, yeah, but they, they didn't even, they didn't even think to like, you know, keep anything. They were yeah. like, Oh yeah. Like it's whatever. That's fine. Yeah. So, um, Robert Fisher starts looking at, because the security tape from the night of the robbery had been taken, he starts looking up the night before. Um, and in the security tape in the night before, you see a, this, you know, a very similar thing of what happened the next night, which is a car pulls up, someone gets out, walks to the door, Rick Abbott buzzes them in, they come in, the like this man comes in, he is kind of high, like in the corner where the camera can't fully see him. He looks like he's talking to Rick Abbott. They're talking. Then he turns and leaves. And that's, that's it. Um, you get, then we get a statement from Aaron, another, um, uh, one of the other guards at the time who was friends with, with Rick and says like, oh, shortly after the robbery, he runs into him and asks him, you know, did they, did they fire you for this happening? And Rick says, no, I quit. Um, but the FBI wants me to stick around. So he knows, so then he knows, like Aaron knows Rick is definitely a suspect at this point. Yeah. Which is just I mean, he's 23 years old. If I was him and that happened to me, I'd be like, forget this. I don't need this job. Like, right. absolutely. Well, he, they, they find out later that he had put in his two weeks notice before a couple days before the robbery, which again looked suspicious. Yes. So. Um, so we got to take a little deep dive into Rick Abbott, even though he's not in this interview, um, in this whole documentary series. Um, I don't know. If he, I wonder if he's still alive. I don't know. I think he is. I think he probably just doesn't want to talk about it anymore. I think he just like wants to move on. Um, Rick Abbott lived in a party house with his bandmates. Um, They put shows on in their house. Like it was very like almost fraternity type hippie style. Um, Aaron comes in and says like, these are the type of hippies that like we're good at chess. Yeah, um, Rick, which that that statement just made me laugh, which is why I put it in there. Like, it just made me laugh. <laughs> the type of hippies that are good at chess, like they're hippies, they're cool, but they're also like kind of smart. smart. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I was just imagining like Queen's ga- Gambit like style. So <laughs> smoking blunts, 
and yes. doing chess. Yes, exactly. Um, so Rick would go to work high a lot. Um, but uh, he said that he was sober the night of the robbery, which I mean, I but also, like we said, this was the one time that something happened. So like he probably had this job for years and was just like, yo, I'm just going to sit here and get high. He would like get high before, like he would be at a party. They'd be playing and stuff like that. And he'd be high and he'd be like, okay, like now I got to go to work. And people would be like, what the fuck? Um, Aaron talks about like being at his house, hanging out with him, smoking weed, drinking beer. And then he's like, okay, I got to go to work now. And Aaron Mm -hmm. would be like, you're going to work. Like, yep. Um, and so, uh, they also talked about how one of the security guards had called in sick that night. He was an older gentleman, um, who, as they said, didn't need the job, but he enjoyed the job. Um, so he would oftentimes call out sick. So it wasn't unusual for that to happen. Um, and so the second guy, he typically was, a a regular, yeah, he was a daytime. He didn't typically do the nighttime, but he'd only been given a few hours notice that he'd be filling in for the night shift. And as Abby had mentioned previously, he had brought his, uh, oboe, um, oh, trombone. I'm sorry. It was an instrument. Okay. Um, And so he brought his instrument with him because he expected from, I'm sure, what coworkers would say. It was like, hey, it's an easy night. You don't do anything. You don't interact with anybody. Like, like whatever. It's like free time. Yeah. Um, which still sounds absolutely miserable on my part, but that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> I, I am not a nighttime person. Um, yeah. Robert Fisher um, then comes back in, tells us that, as I said before, that there is a two-locked-door system that um, – they both doors needed to be separately unlocked in order to let somebody in. Um, and if they didn't um, follow that procedure, then it was a big risk. Um, no, I was saying for the, for the security guards, or not the security guards, for the, the thieves, they had to have known oh, gotcha. that they would for sure get through both doors without yes. any problem. Because exactly. if they if they didn't know that, then they were going into it with a huge risk. Yes. And that is also partly why at one point um Robert Fisher says like either it was an inside job or they had or like it was very frequent that um Abbott would do this. Yeah. Um because yeah, like as Abby said, because the door, the two door lock system, we used to have a two door lock system in the residence hall that Abby and I lived in. It, you could get in through the first door, but if you didn't know the code, you were fucked and you had to wait until either someone texted you what the code was or you waited for someone to come out and push the door open for you. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. If you're a thief, you're, you're put it, if you don't know for sure that someone is going to be unlocking the door for you, you, it's a risky ass game, but if you do show up in a security outfit, you are more likely to have that person open the door for you. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like he was a delivery man. Yeah. You know? So that's my thought process, but Steven, uh, Corcajon, um, which I had to say because he's Armenian clearly by the last name anyways. Um, <laughs> So um, he's a reporter. He's also uh, well known for um, being a part of the Spotlight um, Boston Globe crew, I believe. Um, and uh, if you hadn't ever watched Spotlight, it was the the Catholic Church um, priest uh, scandal yeah. that had happened uh, in the 1980s. Um, 
great movie. Anyways, um, he reported that on January 1st uh, of that year of the theft that Rick Abbott had let people into the museum at midnight and that Abbott had been high, possibly on psychedelics at the time. Yeah, so <laughs> like this Stephen guy is like, oh, he was on a psychedelic trip, blah, blah, blah. And he just he just buzzed somebody in without knowing who it was or what what they were doing there, why they were supposed like why they were trying to get in. So that just shows that, uh, you know, Abbott had did have a history of doing shit he wasn't supposed to do. Um and we go back to Robert Fisher talking about the investigation and he's saying, you know, it's hard to believe that the thieves were just lucky, um, were just lucky enough to get through both doors. And then, uh, and then the fact that they knew where to go and what to take just looked really suspicious for Rick, especially like that they knew to take the security tape. They knew where the security tape would be like all of these things just doesn't fully make sense. Um, so they start to suspect Abbott is involved somehow. Um, and they start questioning Abbott about why did you open that door 15 minutes before the thieves came in? He says, Oh, I always, I always did that. Um, but when Robert Fisher looked through the tapes, he couldn't find evidence of anybody else doing that. Um, he couldn't find evidence of any night shifts uh, that happening on any night shift. So they think it could possibly have been him signaling to the thieves like, oh, I'm done with my round and now I'm taking over the desk. So it's time for you to come in because so, I'll buzz you in. Right. You know, it just looks bad. Um, and then on top of that, they they knew that Rick Abbott had a bad relationship with his supervisors, obviously, because he wasn't a really great worker. <laughs> no, he, um, he literally I think every job has ever like whether you were a kid. Yeah. <laughs> worker or not you always knew who the worst of them was and like this is a perfect description also right when you look at the photos that they took for the boston police just his like uh his drug rug patterned uh uh fanny pack, fanny pack that was in the photo the whole time i was like yeah. there's definitely drugs in there there's absolutely. you cannot tell me there aren't drugs in there <laughs> absolutely so this guy like if you want to picture Rick Abbott, yeah, just picture the guy at your your um, entry level job that you don't know how he hasn't gotten fired yet because he's so shitty at his job. I mean, <laughs> physically, physically, he kind of looks like the guy from uh, Workaholics with the long hair. I don't. I've never seen Workaholics. Okay, well, he's very long, very curly, hippie-ish yeah. hair. So, um, and Rick Abbott also was known to have complained about the security at the Gardner Museum. He was known to talk about it a lot by saying the security system sucks. It would be easy for anybody to get in. It would be easy for people to, to break in and steal shit. Um, which it definitely doesn't seem like something a person who doesn't give a shit about their job would say. Yeah, it's interesting. So um, we go back to the Stephen Kirkjian, who um, talked about how he went to Rick's house in 2013, and he interviewed, and he went out to dinner with him, and interviewed him for like four or five hours, and just talked to him about everything he knew. And um, Rick didn't really give him that much based on like the tape that they play. I don't know how he got four or five hours out of that. I was but about to say that. There must have been, like, awkward silence. 
Rick was Rick basically just said like every question they had Rick was like I don't I don't know how they got it like I don't know how they stole everything I don't know how this happened like I have no idea and that's that's pretty much he just says it over and over again like I don't know I don't know I know it looks bad on me but I really don't know um and that's that's kind of it that's kind of all we get from from our boy Rick who's like you know probably still a stoner <laughs> like oh for sure he's a stoner they play like the, they play the clips of the interview where he talks about um i think he's talking about like a couple nights before the the robbery he's like going oh i went to the grateful dead concert <laughs> yeah like i went to a grateful dead concert it was so much fun i smoked a lot of reefer dropped some acid i was like oh okay all right so this is this is just the kind of guy he's he's just he's a vibe um, then we get to Steve Keller, who is the head of a security company, and he's kind of there as a talking head to talk about the the, the museum security side of the story. Mm. So he mentions um, they show him the printed records that the police had of the uh, night of the robbery, and this includes like all of the motion detector things that went off, which um, he had never been shown before. Mm-hmm which he had never been shown before, even though he's an expert in security and the- uh, In charge, uh, not in charge, but responsible for the security system that is at that museum. Yeah, so he could have been a, a, a very helpful person for the FBI, but for some reason they didn't use him. Um, so he talks about how Rick is, was triggered like walking into the blue room the night of the robbery that's the room on the first floor um the majority of the um thievery happened on the second floor um and you see you see the the alarms being triggered all over the second floor basically and they talk about how they were there for a full 81 minutes but 48 of those 81 minutes the motion alarms were not triggered which would have to mean that the thieves were standing perfectly still um <laughs> in order not to set off the alarm which obviously they weren't just standing around for 48 minutes um because you see like it goes off in one room 12 minutes go by then it goes off in that same room again then 15 minutes go by it goes off in another room and then you know a few minutes go by and it goes off again in the hallway outside or whatever um and he was saying like the alarms um it could have been some kind of a power glitch since there was that fire alarm that had gone off earlier and the, there was no fire obviously um which as somebody who has worked with uh fire alarm systems those can especially old ones can be very finicky um and i've been in a building that has literally a fire alarm has glitched the system and then causes other alarms to go off that aren't registering so that is perfect perfectly reasonable just based on my own personal experience but So then we go back to Abbott's um, interview and voiceover. Um, they, you know, Abbott admits that he would complain about the security system in the museum a lot. Um, and then we have uh, verification from Aaron, the other security guard, that those alarms in the museum were definitely not 100% reliable. Um, they definitely, like, he was like, we would do it on purpose, like, try to trip them on purpose to see if they would go off. And, like, sometimes they would and sometimes they wouldn't. So, obviously, these alarms were not super fantastic. Um, and, you know, Aaron himself says it doesn't make sense 
that for Rick to just go and steal a painting, he doesn't believe that Rick stole that painting or that Rick helped the thieves steal. Um, he just says it doesn't make sense based on what he knew about him at the time, which I kind of believe as well. Like, I don't really understand why this stoner hippie would be like, yeah, I want to be in on this art heist. Like, it just doesn't fully make sense. Um, it doesn't seem like he was after money or anything, but you never know. Um, and then we go to Rick's voiceover um, where he says uh, he's the only person who doesn't want to figure out what happened because he's just so thankful that he's alive. Yeah. Um, because he said, you know, in those moments when he was tied up and everything in the basement, he was really scared. Um, yeah. And he just says he's thankful to be alive. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so, um, then we jump into September 1981. Um, and Charles Hedorn, um, he had been a former head of security for the museum. We had met him earlier. Um, he explained that a well-dressed man had came into the museum saying that um, he was an FBI agent and said that a man named uh, Louis Royce um, was casing the museum for a heist. Um, Royce had a lot of info on the museum. Maybe someone... Um, had been revealing information about the security, whether like they were drunk or if it was an inside job being like, hey, look out about this. Um, workers um, could have mob ties and Royce was a gang member um, most associated with the Rossetti gang. Um, you, you inhaled. Yes. Sorry. I was saying like, um, you know, they were saying maybe uh, some of the workers had a tie to the mob and or maybe they owed money to the mob because if Royce was tied to this Rossetti gang, then and he knew insider information, he could have got it either through a connection, somebody else who was connected to the gang or somebody who owed the gang money or had some kind of debt um, that they had to pay to this gang. So they were, you know, trading information. Yeah. Um, and so it said info about Royce had brought, been brought to the director at the time who didn't really care since the guy had been in custody. Um, and this was the guy prior to Anne Howley. Um, so it then transitioned from this gentleman to Anne Howley. The collection at the museum was not insured for theft. The museum had also had a lot of structural pro problems. It had also, they described it as um, being internally focused and not looking out towards the community and ties and like right. getting um, support from the community around it. Um, and that was kind of Anne Howley's job of being put in was that she was supposed to kind of bring life back to the museum. Mm -hmm. um, and so the art theft increased in the 80s as the value of art increased. The 80s, as it comes up time and time again, was a big... I don't know how my family lived <laughs> near Boston, but it makes a lot of sense growing up why, like, Abby and I have had this conversation in the past. I lived outside of Boston, but it is uncommon for anyone to not lock their houses. And I think that this is partly why my family knew that they had to do shit like this because my grandparents grew up in Charlestown, which is obviously very Irish, very Italian, um, as we later find out. But the 80s was just, you just don't go to Boston in the 80s. Yeah, like, it was a really shady, it was a really shady area. Just shady, a lot, very. A lot of drugs going on. A lot, lot of, of cocaine. A lot of theft, lot, 
lots of murder, like, you know, the mobs were like just thriving, I guess, in this time. Um, so art theft was tied into the drug trade. Cocaine was huge in Southie, um, which is also the nickname for South Boston. Um, art would have been worth about 20 million to thieves. Um, yeah, so the art, the art that was stolen, the, all those pieces from the Gardner Museum would have been worth about 20 million on the, like, on the black market. On the black market, even so though it was worth it was less worth than. Two, yeah, so it's about 20 per, 20 per, 10 percent, 10 percent, that was 200 million. Anyways, we know math, we graduated. Anyways. I don't know math. I'm too gay to know math. Um, so then. <laughs> Uh, we go back to Miles Connor and, uh, I don't know what this, oh, 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 um, okay, so <laughs> he talks about, sorry, I, I didn't, I'm not reading my own note properly, um, so No, he, I took oh, this note at this point. Oh, okay, you took that note, that's why. You, you like, can tell by the formatting. <laughs> right, because it's better than mine. Yes. So Miles Connor talks about how he, when he stole the Rembrandt in 1975, mm -hmm. um, that he used that as uh, kind of a bargaining chip for himself uh, to get. Excuse me, New York City, chill. No, they won't chill. Some aggressive um, energy. Uh, the driving, the driving can be quite aggressive. There's a lot of honking. Um, so. Uh, Miles Connor is talking about how when he stole the Rembrandt that it was kind of a purposeful move so that he could um, get himself uh, out of jail for other crimes he had committed already. Now and the Rembrandt was the Rembrandt from the Museum of Fine Arts. Right. So he talks about his thievery of the uh, of that Rembrandt that he joined uh, a tour through the museum he was with a friend of his, a friend, a partner. He took the painting and just tried to just tried to kind of run out the door with it, which is real casual, um, you know, broad daylight and all. Uh, and his friend was waiting with a machine gun so that when he took the painting and went to leave, you know, when the, the security guards would be running and he says, you know, this is like these security guards were all former cops. So this would be a, um, like, these weren't 20 something stoners, like the Gardner Museum. This was like, legit security people. And so when they all came running down the stairs, his friend would fire the machine gun at their feet to get them all to run in the opposite direction so that he could leave. Um, and he says there was like one guy that like Some followed. Some and that one guy that followed and was like hanging on to the the painting and they just like hit him in that head with a gun and the gun and that's how we they got away um which is so interesting having been in the museum of fine arts like pretty frequently throughout my adult life slash child life that i'm just like i have to think of like okay where did they where in the museum did they have a clean getaway where they could sprint out of the door because this museum at least, I assume, at least how it is now, it is huge with multiple entrances, multiple, like, you could get lost in this place for hours. Um, so I can only imagine the just absolute chaos of this, but I, it was funny to think, sorry. So um, in return for 
the the painting being returned safely to the authorities um that was miles connor's way of getting out of jail that was his way of getting his sentence um reduced for all of his other crimes that he was uh looked at for so instead of getting two four-year sentences he got one four-year sentence that was it and um <laughs> clearly this man committed a lot of crimes so he but he did very little jail time and walked away a free man and he's still living a free man to this day so good for him <laughs> i guess i mean he talks like he doesn't really seem like a violent guy he talks about <laughs> he talks about how during his art heist he's like you know shoot him literally said he was, was a murderer they, they said say he was a Right, they said he was a murderer, but I was like, why is he a murderer if he just does, like, is like, ah, let's steal this art, but don't kill anybody. Don't kill anybody. Well, I mean, I think that this was a an example of an opportunity that he thought, okay, I know that these other charges are going to be raised against me. I can True. steal this thing, give it back, and be like, oh, look, I know where yeah. it is. Um, yeah. So obviously you're not going to kill somebody if you're trying to get yourself out of doing other felony charges. Right, okay, right. So but, I'm just saying, yes, I understand what you're saying, but it also seems like he might just be a smart enough individual that he wants to see true. if he can do it to true. prove he can do it. True. And, okay, so I was going to – I just want to throw in that I saw this TikTok the other day. Was it? Did you send it to me or was it – I don't know if I just saw it like when I was scrolling, but I saw this TikTok where this this um this girl was like, "This is the smartest uh, advice I ever received from an attorney," and it's, "Don't break the law while you're breaking the law." No, um, I did not see that. So she's like, "If you're driving around with a dead body in your car, don't speed. If you're like, <laughs> you know, like we're not supposed to be giving advice." <laughs> No, but it was it, like, this is actually a perfect example of that, right? Yes. Don't mm -hmm. kill anybody while you're trying to steal a really uh, expensive piece of art. Yes. The law while you're breaking the law, because then you're going to get all kinds of other charges thrown on you, right? If somebody had died, if somebody had gotten severely injured or whatever. Yeah. No, right? I, I mean, it, do, it does make sense. I mean, how many times have we discussed something where that like, okay, the, the Yorkshire Ripper he had a prostitute in his car with license plates that didn't right. match his vehicle. Don't he, break the law while you're breaking the law. Or break the law while you're breaking the law so you get caught if you're going to be a serial killer. But Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> you're going to get caught because you were breaking the law while you were breaking the law. Is Just that, don't break laws. That's how, but actually we'll find out later, this is how they end up like bringing in a lot of these guys who they yes. suspect in connection with the, the art heist is that they get them for stupid shit for some other dumb shit that they did for some other times that they've broken the law and then they they say okay well if you want to get out of this let me about this know. <laughs> yeah um so um so 1990 if um so basically in the 1990s if you were working for the fbi and you want to get a promotion, easiest thing that you could do to get your name in the paper and a good promotion and get a good pay raise was to put away a mafia member. Um, and uh, when the FBI is involved, in any case in general, specifically in the Gardner case, communication was 
not their strong point. Um, they weren't willing to talk to the media, the local or state police sharing any kind of information. Um, and it seems like because of that, the state and local cops were not as willing to give their information as well, mm-hmm. which as we know, communication has always been key when to, you know, solving crimes, uh, especially big crimes. Um, Uh, So the crime scene had been contaminated. Items like, as we said before, the DNA was not their top priority of collecting because they just weren't thinking about DNA back then. They didn't see the potential that DNA could be as it's used nowadays. And one of the things that they discussed was that there had been the duct tape that had been used to bind Abbott. um, And they had balled it up and it had gotten lost where if they had it, they would have been able to chemically expand it, um, pick up any fingerprints and be able to test those fingerprints. Um, But that wasn't possible because they fucking lost the duct tape. They sure fucking did. And I was like, some dumbass threw it away. I can guarantee you some some person was like, I'm going to pick this up. Um, Someone was like, we're not going to need this. Yeah. They also at one point said like, oh, like there was even cases where like they walked in and saw the like one of the side doors that they were like, oh, we didn't know if the police had opened the door or if the thieves had opened the door because nothing typically for um how the fbi runs cases now you have to sign in and sign out every time you enter and exit a crime scene um to make sure that they know who's contaminating the environment Mm -hmm. so um so anyways then we have nancy glotter and justin uh stratman they had been the two the female and the male at the beginning of our story um who had been witnesses they were at the party they had walked back Um, They had been walking back from a party. They had passed a hatchback with two dressed police officers in this hatch at this hatchback. Mm -hmm. They gave their statement and description of the people to Boston police. Um, But when you look at the sketch artist photo that had been released to the public, Nancy and Justin both say that this looks nothing like the people that they got a good look at. Um, and so they were like, clearly our information had never been passed off to the FBI and wherever this communication issue had been, it had never been followed up on. And the FBI had never reached out to them as witnesses to talk to them, even to this day, at at least at the point of the filming of this. Um, they also pointed out as just like we talked about with, um, the Cecil, like we talked about with uh, the Yorkshire Ripper, like we talked about even with the Night Stalker. They had 18 police officers on this case and suddenly within a month, it had gone down to one 26 year old. Imagine me, 26 in charge (laughs) of solving a $200 million forge uh, uh, art heist by myself. I'm sorry. I have a master's degree and I know I'm not capable of doing this shit. Like, honey, it should never be one person. It should never be one person. Just like never trust a man who has a secret room. He doesn't let you in. These are just, I'm going to make a list. Some basic, basic, some basic shit. 
basic shit you should always know never put one person in charge of a a crime scene slash case and never trust a man who has a secret room Mm -hmm. so uh then in 2015 no yes yes so in 25 years later 25 years after this robbery they decide to um uh release the security tape of the night before where we mentioned rick buzzed somebody in that person came in they like chit-chatted then the guy left um and they had no idea who this was and they were you know very suspicious of it um pretty quickly it's determined which this could have been determined 25 years prior that this was somebody who worked at the museum um so (laughs) this was the deputy director of security and uh this just shows that they feel like um this just shows that like the fbi really wasn't putting in their full like effort into this case at the time uh clearly which we will which we'll get into more details about why but um basically during that same week of the theft there was a bunch of uh crackdowns on the mafia the Italian mob in Boston, the, uh, what is it, Nostra, Costa, uh, something. And I just kept putting it down as the Italian mob. Yeah, there was, yeah, the there Ita- was no the way. Yes, I'm part Italian. No, I cannot speak it. So I wasn't going to try. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's pretty interesting. Um, but, uh, so just prior just just prior to this the same week there was all these crackdowns big arrests made on huge uh members of the mafia and um these paintings as we already know had been were uh good tools to use as a get out of jail free card so wouldn't it be convenient if right when you got arrested somebody would go and take a painting or or 15 and (laughs) and say hey i can get you some of this back if you let me go free you know um makes makes a little bit of sense doesn't it so then that is where we hit the the end of episode two and that is the end of part one of our journey (laughs) um so i wanted to quickly just add some stuff because um uh i you asked where richard abbott was now uh thinking he was dead he's not dead (laughs) um so um just some quick information from the tab um from a recent interview with NPR, I believe. Um, He now lives in Vermont, uh, or no, he moved to Vermont in 1999, graduated from college in 2010, which good for him. Um, He was a a teacher's aide in Brattleboro, Vermont. He is now in his 50s, married um, to a woman named Diana with two children. I don't know why we had to know their names. But he said that even even if they get the paintings back, they'll never be the same. I feel horrible about that. I don't want to be remembered for this alone. I'd like to be remembered for the good things I've done. I'm a husband, a father of two really cool kids, but they're saying it's half a billion worth of artwork. And ultimately, I'm the one who made the decision to buzz them in. It's the kind of thing most people don't learn to cope with. It's like doing penance. It's always there. So, so I completely understand why he's not in it. 
Yeah, this is something that's haunted him for a long time, clearly. And it's yeah. something that still is kind of affecting him. And I get that he doesn't want to be remembered for it. I totally get it. But I feel like he he also gets that he, like, looks a little sus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but again, he's 23 years old. And on our, you know, on jobs we don't care about, everybody makes mistakes. And sadly, his his was worth a lot more than our mistakes that we've previously made has been, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but anyways, so that's the end of our part one coverage of This is a Robbery, the world's biggest art heist on Netflix. Um, It is four parts. So the next part will be three and four, and we'll be covering that. Um, And so, yeah, well, um, quick uh, positive vibes, abs. Uh, Positive vibes. I mean, I'm feeling really good about yesterday. Yesterday was a really great day with some um, decluttering, cleaning, a spring cleaning day, getting stuff done, getting errands done. It was good. Um, Anything you're looking forward to? Um, this week? Um... Just one of those days. Just one of those weeks. I mean, it's not, it's not a bad week. I'm not in a bad place. Uh, I'm in a good place. Just, uh, you know, but you know what I mean? Like sometimes it's not a good week or a bad week. It's just a week. It's just a week. Yeah. Just going through another week and, uh, you know, staying hydrated, taking my meds. Hell yeah. Um, Yeah. We're, we're doing good. Um, this, this past week I had my very first pap smear. I know I'm late to the game, but keep your, keep your, Keep your vaginas in check, everybody. Oh. Just, just general advice. Oh, just I, and this is why we have female audience members. Um, uh, hey, be inclusive. People, people with vaginas aren't always female. Oh, okay. You know what? Thank you for calling me out on that. I deserve that, and thank you so that I can learn. Um, yes, uh, we need to be inclusive to all people, and I apologize for that. Um, well, thank you guys. Um, my highlight, uh, I keep saying thank you guys. I don't know why. Um, my highlight Thanks is that everybody. Ah, my highlight um, is that not only that I got vaccinated, so that's exciting. Uh, yeah. um, and throughout this, uh, my arm has continued to get more and more um, sore, um, which is totally okay. Um, used to that from past shots and vaccines and stuff like that. So nothing out of the normal, but, um, I, um, went to Bath and Body Works yesterday and I, by accident, but like a happy accident purchased, um, the same scent in hand sanitizer, hand lotion and car scent. Um, so my car smells like passion fruit, pineapple, banana. Um, so it smells like spring break. It's wonderful. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, I'm just loving, I I love nice smells and new fresh air fresheners. And then like, hell yeah, my like obsession with buying cleaning supplies, though I never use it as frequently as I should, but it's just... (laughs) It makes me feel good. So that that's a plus for me today. And I'm also staying hydrated. So Heck yeah. Well, well so. please make sure that you guys follow us on our social media, such as our Instagram. Absolutely. You take it away, Abby, with your uh spiel. 
We are on Instagram at uh, Caffeinated Crime Pod. We are on Twitter at CWC Pod. You can always shoot us an email, crimeswellcaffeinated at gmail.com. Uh, make sure you subscribe, rate, leave us a good review, tag us in your Catterday posts. Um, Hell yeah. You um, know, thank we're you. fun to follow on Instagram because we post a lot of, Aaron posts a lot of cool things. Yeah. I said we, but it's really just Aaron. Yeah, it's Aaron. Um, lots of boobs. Lo- lots of boobs from last episode. Hell um, yeah. We love boobies. Love boobies. Um, and uh also, uh, we shout out to Rebecca for our only Patreon, um, which makes uh, is a miracle to me because we still have no content on there. Um, but shout out to Becca. <laughs> Someday we'll have content. You never know. Someday um- when I have the time and energy, we will have content. Um, but Absolutely. yes. Um, so thank you guys again so much for joining us. And as always, Abby, don't. don't- Forget Forget to to take take your your meds. Take your meds. Bye, bitch. Bye. Bye. Bye.